The reason we're studying Elijah is because Elijah was known for the power that he had in his prayer. In fact, the book of James says this about him, is that he was a human, ordinary man, just like you and I, but he had such power when he prayed. When he prayed, it didn't rain for three and a half years. And so our thinking is, if this man can understand human, just like you and I, but can figure out how to pray and it not rain for three and a half years, there's probably some things that we can learn from him. And so a couple of weeks ago, we began this series called The Prophet looking at Elijah. And some things that we're learning from prayer about him is the very first week we talked about his request. And his request was that it wouldn't rain. But here's what we really dug down deep when we found out about his request is that any powerful prayer, whether it's Elijah's powerful prayer or our powerful prayer, the request needs to be God-centered. And the reason Elijah walked in there and said, it's not going to rain, it's not because he dreamed of some great idea, I think I'll make it not rain. He knew the heart of God. And so really it was a God-centered prayer, not an Elijah-centered prayer. And we also learned this about the, the, the request, is that not only should the request be, be God-centered, but our life must be God-centered also. That the whole reason that God had it not rain in the, in the country of Israel is because the people's heart had become divided and they had turned from him. That the King Ahab had introduced other gods in this country, Baal and other gods, and they began worshiping, serving those gods. And so the whole reason that Elijah walked in on behalf of God and said, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, is to get the people's attention so they would become more God-centered like he anointed and he had ordained them to be. But in that prayer, the request, the second thing we learned last week was there's the wait I don't know about you, but how many times have I prayed? And as soon as I prayed, I'm like, God, where's the answer? Where's the answer? Um, but we oftentimes have to wait. And that waiting is not because God's busy up in heaven trying to do something else and taking care of other problems. It's not because God just wants to see you suffer a little bit and see me suffer a little bit. Oftentimes the wait from the time that we request our prayer until the time that it might be answered is God is trying to grow our faith. He's trying to deepen our trust in him. And it's in that faith and that deepening of our relying on him that that we really get to know him the best. And that's what he's really after. More than even our prayer request being answered, he's after that deep relationship with us. And so here's what we've learned so far, if you haven't picked up on it, not a formula for praying, but more of a rhythm of praying. There's the request, there's the waiting, but the part of the, the, the rhythm that I want us to look at today is the fight. Because anytime there's a prayer, there's spiritual warfare going on, and in the waiting and the requesting, there's oftentimes this fight taking place between the good and the evil, between God and Satan in our own lives, and we see it working out. And so today, in our story of Elijah, we get to the fight. First Kings chapter 18. Now I've got to warn you, if you're here today and maybe you're a little skeptic, you're not sure about this whole God thing. Maybe you're kind of kicking the tires about Christianity or, or maybe you've grown up hearing all the stories and you're starting to kind of question a little bit on your own part. Let me just kind of give you a warning as we talk about today in chapter 18. It is going to be a very unbelievable story. Okay, here's why I say unbelievable, because you're not used to the preacher standing up there and saying something in the scripture is unbelievable. Don't misunderstand me. I believe what the scripture says and what we're going to read 100%. But if you're on the outside looking in, maybe you're a little leery about Christianity or following God, you read this story going, see, that's why I don't believe in God. Because that story is so crazy, Hollywood could not even script a story that crazy. And so that's the very reason that I kind of hold off and I'm becoming a little bit more skeptical in my belief and my, my, my pursuance of God. Here's what I'd like to say. If that's you today, I respect your opinion, but would you not take the story and all of a sudden throw out the heart of the story just because you don't really believe in the story? 
In fact, here's my own personal opinion. I need stories in the Bible that aren't unbelievable. I just simply call them miraculous. Because if all the stories in the Bible are ones that I could craft and hold and make up in my own hands, then why do I need God? That if I'm going to put my faith and trust in something, a higher being, I want it in a holy God that can do things that I can't do. And so the unbelievableness of this story actually personally gives me more faith in the very story, the very God that the story is about. But if you're here and you take a little bit different perspective than I do, I simply say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Listen to all of it. And I trust the God that we're going to learn about in this story will be one that God will reveal himself to you that you might come to know in a personal way. And then the faith takes place from the personal way. So with all that being said, 1 Kings chapter 18, and here's what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, later on in the third year of the drought. So if we go all the way back to the time that that Elijah walked into King Ahab and said, King Ahab, you were supposed to be leading the people to God. You were supposed to be a king that led them to have their hearts centered and focused on God completely. But unfortunately, you've become a king that has allowed them, has left them, has even guided them to be little non-God centered to be more self-centered, to find all these other little gods to believe in instead of the Yahweh God. And so it was that time three years ago is when Elijah walked in and said, and it won't rain. And here we are three plus years later. So later on, the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. And meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in, in Samaria. And so this is going to be the first time that King Ahab, the king of Israel, and Elijah have met since that fateful day that Elijah announced that it wouldn't rain anymore. And so we're not really sure where they met, but you can imagine probably on a road somewhere. It wasn't official castle meeting, but they met up together. And look what happens in verse 17 when they met up together. Then Ahab saw him, he exclaimed in verse 17. So is it really you, the troublemaker of Israel? Now, if you circle things in your scripture on the handout there, circle that troublemaker. Here is King Ahab. He's the one that wasn't fulfilling his God-given duties. He was the one that was supposed to be leading the country to follow God and God alone. Yet he's the one that allowed his wife Jezebel to step in and begin to introduce other gods in the people's lives, Asherah and Baal. And so he's the one that was guilty of being the troublemaker in Israel. Yet on this particular day, He looks at Elijah and said, Elijah, is that you, the troublemaker of Israel? In verse 18, Elijah responds back, I have made no trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, you and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you have worshiped the images of Baal instead. And then verse 19 He says, now summon all of Israel, join me to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So at this moment, as Elijah and King Ahab Ahab look each other on the street, it's like they drew the line in the sand and said, it's time to put on boxing gloves. Okay, Elijah's like, I've run, I've hid, I've done what God told me to for three and a half years. Ahab, you're the one calling me a troublemaker. It is time that we duke it out, but not you and I as two men. It is time that we get our gods that we believe in and we're going to have a fight. And we're going to see which God is standing at the end of the day. And so Ahab, as he looked at Elijah, said, I'll take you up on it. 
And I want to story tell you the rest of it. I really want you to go home and read it in chapter 18 because it's an amazing, incredible story. The, the Bible says this, that they summoned all of Israel to this valley called Mount Carmel. You say all of Israel, it was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that showed up. So it was like the Super Bowl of all time that they showed up right there. I, I want to talk about also just the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 or the 400 prophets of Asherah. So Ahab brought all of his prophets, all of his priests. These are like his frontline guys and they're going to be part of the fight. And so the Bible says, as they came together, Elijah stood before everybody and said, let me tell you the rules of this contest. Here's how it's going to work. Hey, team over there, you guys, Ahab and your people, y'all are going to go get a bull and bring it. And I'm going to bring a bull and we're going to sacrifice, cut up the animal, cut up the bull, put it on the altar. And then we're each going to call our own God to bring fire from heaven to consume the bull. And whoever's God sends the fire, that's the God that's the biggest God. That's the God that all the nation of Israel can start believing in. That's the God that will declare the winner. And then Elijah looked at him and said, I'll be the, the gentleman of this whole contest. He said, I'll step back. I want y'all to pick the bull that you want. You go first and let's see how this turns out for your side. So the Bible says all the prophets and the priests got together. They got this bull. They cut him up. They sliced him up. They diced him up. They put the wood on the altar. They put him on there. And they began the biggest religious fanatic show that you've ever seen in your life. The Bible says all morning long, they begin to dance and scream and pray. Oh, God's in heaven. Oh, God's of Baal. Send down the fire. Send down the fire. And they're dancing. Scripture lets us know it probably had to be just almost a, a, a picture of chaos. It was so much going on. And you got all the Israelites watching it, and they're just waiting and waiting. In fact, as they're watching and waiting, they're probably like, you know what? I don't know which side I want to be on. I grew up believing in Yahweh God, the God of Elijah, so I should be standing over here. But over the last three years, I've turned my life and my family and my business and everything about me to the God of Baal, so I should be standing over here. So there's probably a lot of those people trying to straddle both sides going, I'm not a fan for this team. I'm not a fan for this team. I'm just a fan for the God that wins at the very end. So all morning long, they're the religious prophets and priests, they're doing their dance. Finally, the Bible says about noontime, Elijah says, time out, hold on a second. Can I just ask a question? Where's your God? Like, we've been waiting around. It's been going on for three or four hours. Is your God like daydreaming? Is he taking a nap somewhere? Or even looks at him, and you can read this in the Bible. If you think there's no humor in the Bible, here's where the humor is. He actually looks at him and says, where's your God? Is he off taking a potty break? I mean, why can't he answer you right now? And really, Elijah's in this moment going, I know whose God's going to win. So I don't mind a little trash talking, a little mocking to kind of stir the fire a little bit right here. He's going, what's the deal? Is he going to come or what? But Elijah steps back. And the Bible lets us know that all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they began to increase what they were doing. In fact, one of the part of their religious rituals, they would take knives and cut their arms as a part of worship. Can't understand how that works, why that works, but they begin dancing, they're cutting, they're slicing. You can imagine just really the religious chaos going on, trying to stir their God up to send the fire. Nothing. One o'clock, nothing. Two o'clock in the afternoon, nothing. They're dancing, they're shouting. All the people of Israel are still watching. They're going, which side should I stand on? Which side should I stand on? Because I want the winning God and we've gone both ways. And so there's just chaos going on amongst them. Finally, about six o'clock in the evening, Elijah goes, time out again. You've had enough. My team's turn. We get the ball now. 
And he walks over to his altar, and in all the religious craziness, his altar had been torn down that he already built. So the Bible says he began to construct it again. He took 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He laid them all out. He got some more wood and laid it on the stones for his altar. He got his bull and sliced and diced and minced it and put the bull on top of there. So it looks like it's ready for the big sacrifice to call down the fire from God. But he didn't stop there, the Bible says. The Bible says he got a small tool and began to dig a moat around the altar. And once he got the moat dug around the altar... And you can imagine by now that people are looking going, I know whose side I'm going on. That man's crazy. Because the next thing he did, he called for some buckets of water. And Elijah got his first bucket of water, the Bible says there in chapter 18. And he poured that water on the bull, on the wood, on the entire sacrificial area. Poured enough into it that it began to run in the moat that he had built around it. And everybody knows if you're going to start something, it needs to be dry. If you're going to start a fire, it needs to be dry. And this crazy man, Elijah, he's pouring water on what he's trying to get started on fire. But he didn't stop at one bucket of water. He called for another one. And he called for another one. And he called for another one. And every time he's pouring the water on the bull and the wood and all this there, the people are probably going, okay, I was kind of on Elijah's side, but I think I'm going to step all the way over here on Bell's side because this man is crazy. And after the water is poured... The Bible says the moat was full of water. Over three gallons of water had been poured over that bull. And then Elijah stood before the people. And he raised his hand to God. And he said, oh God in heaven, God of Abraham, God of Israel, would you send your fire not so I'll be made famous, but so your glory will be made known. Will you send your fire so you can show these people that their heart should be completely yours and not other gods? So God sends your fire. And the Bible says, just like that, the fire rained from heaven and hit the bull. In fact, it goes on to say this, as the fire burned, it not only burned the wet wood and the wet bull, it began to consume the rocks and the dust and the dirt and every bit of water that was in there. It was God's way of saying, when I show up to fight, I will win this fight and you'll know I'm there. At this point, I want to say a joke, something about the Broncos and when they play, but my Cowboys are so bad, I can't even go there. So we'll leave those jokes aside. But it was God's going, I am the winning team and I'm here. And after that fire hit that bull and consumed everything on that altar, in verse 41, it says, then Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink. For I think I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. And then he went on to say this, and soon the sky was black with clouds and a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm. So it was God showing all the people who is God. That's quite a battle, isn't it? It's quite a fight. Like the dramaticness of that, of all the fire and the stone and the water and the prancing around, the people of religiosity, but the real God really showing up and doing it. It's one of those fights that you're looking going, that's a spiritual warfare. That's a spiritual fight. And in fact, it's one of those fights that many times we pray that we feel like we step into ourselves because the book of Ephesians says this about spiritual warfare. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood and enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So we had the request, we had the wait, now we have the fight. 
fight made for Hollywood, a fight that we look at that going, okay, God, when I pray, can you give me a fight like that? Can you show up in the things I'm going against? Can you show up in the dark places in my life and we'll show you show yourself like that and give me a big fight that I could be a part of like that? But here's my concern. We're drawn to the dramatic side of that fight. And we look at it going, now that is the fight. But the reality is that's not the biggest fight. The biggest fight that was going on was not in the battlefield, was not in the valley of Mount Carmel. The real fight that was going on was in the hearts of the people. Because it was their hearts that three and a half years later began to turn and step away from God. It was in their hearts they began to feel the tug of this way or that way, and they gave in to Baal. They gave in to Asherah. They gave in to all the other little gods of their life. And so the problem was we focus on the big fight in the valley, but if they had won the fight of their hearts before that, they would never have been a fight in the valley. And as followers of Jesus, we can get so consumed with the big dramatic spiritual fights in our lives And we point the finger going, that's spiritual battle. But reality, the spiritual battle that's taking place is taking place in our hearts before the real fight ever gets there. In fact, let me read to you chapter 18, verse 20. When Ahab called all the people together before they built the altars, before the the, the prancing and the dancing and the religiosity took place there, before the fire ever came down from heaven, this is what he told people in verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and he said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the Bible says, but the people were completely silent. They realized their guilt. They realized this calling out by Elijah was the fact that they had been wavering from this God to this God, to this belief, to this belief. And it was in that wavering that the fight was actually won, or in their case, the fact, the fact that the fight was actually lost. Like I said, the fight was not taking place on Mount Carmel. The fight had been taking place in their hearts. You see, we have this idea when it comes to spiritual fighting in our prayer life, like put on the boxing gloves and let's go. It is not taking place in the boxing ring. It is taking place in the spiritual quietness of our own hearts. See, from the beginning of time, God has desired and God has demanded him that we give him all of our hearts. Going back to when Joshua was leading the, the Israelites into the promised land, this is what he said in chapter 24. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord only. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the book of Matthew? This is how he replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul. All. That's the greatest commandment. In the book of Revelations, when John is doing his tour of all of heaven and he was seeing all the different messages to the churches, this is what it says in Revelations chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. God says, I know all the things you do that you are neither hot nor cold. 
I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, God says, I will spew you, I will spit you, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For all of life, from the beginning of time to us today, somehow we think if we just give God some and not all, he'll be satisfied. You know, if my wife, I came to her tonight and I said, Denise, I love you. And she goes, I know you love me. I said, listen, the day we said I do at our altar 31 years ago, I love you. And she goes, I know that. And then I looked at her and said, I love you, Denise, more than the other girl that I'm taking out on Friday night. I just want you to know that. And the other girl that I took out last night, I love you more than her. I just want you to know I love you more than all those people. She would look at me, my wife would look at me and says, until I get all of your love, you don't get all of any of my love. Until I get all of your love, then that is not how we're going to run this marriage. But somehow, we shake our head yes that way on relationships and marriage. But we think, God, I'll give you most of my love, but a little bit of my love goes over here. I'll give you most of my attention, but some of my attention goes over there. I'll give you most of my obedience, but some of my obedience goes over there. And we offer to God and going, God, what a great sacrifice. Don't you want this? And God looks at us and says, I want all of your heart. And that's the mistake the Israelites made when Jezebel and Ahab introduced other gods. And that is the same exact mistake we make in our own lives today. You see, we have the tendency to give a little piece of our heart there and a little piece of our heart there. The Israelites never turned their backs completely on God. There was never a time this whole story, they're like, God, we don't think we want you anymore. See ya. And they went all the way this way. What they did is God will take a little bit of you and we'll stand on this side and we'll take a little bit of Baal and Asherah and we'll stand on this side. And they split it right down the middle. They tried to give loyalty to both sides. But let me give you your first fill in. Partial obedience is actually disobedience, complete disobedience to God. And that's what the Israelites learned. You can't give partial and call it all. It's either all or it's nothing. And so partial obedience is actually complete disobedience to God. It's like if Elijah stood before them, he said this to them in that verse. He said, how much longer will you waver between this and that? Other translations put it this way. He goes, how much longer will you go limping between this side and that side? Or another translation says, how long will you hesitate between two points? But I love how the message puts it the very best. It says, how long are you going to sit on the fence? And just as the Israelites were sitting on the fence trying to go, this God or this God, Elijah looked at him and said, you've got to choose a side. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. In fact, if Elijah was standing before us today and he was preaching this message, here's the second fill-in, and this is what I think he would say to us. He would say, we need to get rid of any habit, affiliation, attitude, or life direction that is toxic, and it needs to be obliterated. But we want to negotiate. Oh, God, can I have a little bit of this? Not too much of this. Maybe just a little bit of that. Not too much of that, God. I mean, look, I'm a lot better than this person over here, and I'm sure not doing what those folks over there are doing. And so we try to negotiate with God. If you were really, really thirsty, and so I brought you a glass of water, and I said, before you drink this water, you need to know it's 16 ounces of good water. I put just a little bit of poison in it. You'll be okay. (laughs) You'd look at me going, I don't want any of that water. 
Yet we try to offer the same sacrifices of our lives up to God with just a little bit of bad affiliation, just a little bit of life focus, just a little bit of bad habits. And going, God, it's just a little bit. Won't you take it? But we need to get rid of any habit, affiliation, attitude, or life direction that is too toxic and needs to be obliterated. You see, here's what we need to understand about this fight. The fight was never whose God was bigger. The fight was always about whose God they would serve. See, God is bigger. Okay? God is bigger than any other God or thing or person we put in front of him. That's not the question. It's who we will serve as our God, not whose God is bigger. You know, this whole sermon series, we talked about how do we pray better? In fact, to be real specific, we said, how do we have more powerful prayers as Elijah did? Because the Bible says in the book of James, he was a human just like you and I. So if he had the power to pray for it not to rain for three and a half years, how do we have that same kind of prayer, the power in our prayer when we can pray over things like that? And here's the answer. The greater we align with God, the greater the power in our prayer. The more our hearts are wholly his, the more powerful our prayers will be. Not because he gives us the magic wand of power. Oh, my heart's all yours, God. Bam, I can ask what I want to. But when our hearts become wholly his, our attitudes, our wants, our desires begin to line up with his. And so in the case of Elijah, like we said in the very beginning, he didn't make up this idea, how about it not to rain for these three and a half years. He was simply getting the mind and the heart of the God who already decided for it not to rain for three and a half years. And so the greater the alignment with God, the greater that we'll find our power in our prayers with God. It says this in Psalms chapter 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to the cry. And here's what that tells us. The righteous are those whose hearts are completely his. It doesn't mean we walk perfect. It doesn't mean we never make mistakes. It doesn't mean we don't sin. But the righteous are those that follow Jesus in faith, and they give all their life to following him completely with, with everything they have. And so the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to the cry. That tells us what we said. The greater we align with God, the greater our power and our prayer will be. Now, here's my confession. My confession is that I'm not always there. I want to be. I wake up every morning as I lay in bed going, God, can my life be completely yours today? And by the time I put my first foot on the floor, I'm probably already messing up that prayer. We're human. Now, that doesn't excuse what we do, but we need to understand who we are. And so because we mess up every day, because we may want it, but we don't get there, there is a confession that we need to make to God. And that confession is, God, we want to be everything you want us to be. In fact, about 300 years later, after Elijah, the prophet Jeremiah coined a, a prayer, a confessional prayer. And I want to read it to you now. This is found in Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 20 through 22. And here's what he said. Lord, we confess our wickedness and that of our ancestors too. We all have sinned against you. For the sake of your reputation, Lord, do not abandon us. He goes on to say, do not disgrace your own glorious throne, but please remember us and do not break your covenant with us. Can any of these worthless foreign gods send us rain? Does it fall from the sky by itself? No, you are the one, O Lord, our God. Only you can do such things. 
So we will wait for you to help us. Church, here's what I think. If that became our prayer, if that became our daily confession, that we offer ourselves up with humility and the openness that Jeremiah did, that God would send rain on our country, on our city, and our church. Not physical rain to wet the ground, but the rain of his Holy Spirit. Because here's what I'm afraid of. In our church and churches across America, we may be just as guilty of religiosity and religious antics as the Baal and the prophets were in that field as anything else. Now, we're not cutting ourselves. We're not dancing around. But here's the deal. Too many times we go through our religious traditions. We go through our things that we like because we've always done it. And we're going, God, where are you? Where are you? And the problem is, is not what we're doing. It's the hearts behind what we're doing. You know what's interesting? About 30 years ago, when I began ministry, I began ministering student ministry. And I would stand before junior high and high school students and I would preach this verse. I would preach this passage because when you're in middle school and high school, if you're a boy, you're being called by girls, you're being called by this. If you're a girl, you got all this popularity. There's all these things when you're in your young teens that you're being pulled to. And I would say, God wants all of your heart and they would listen and understand it. I thought, well, one day we'll get mature enough and not need to preach that message anymore. Can I ask you, do you still need that message? We never outgrow it, do we? Because we may look more mature in how we make decisions. We may look more responsible in choices that we make. And our religious expression may be more stable in what we do every week. But we can go through all those motions and actions and our hearts still not be completely God's. So church, here's my challenge, not to you, but to us is that we would have the prayer of Jeremiah. That we would confess, God, we are not all yours, but we want to be all yours. And then be so bold in saying, God, would you hear our prayers, not for our benefit, but for your glory. Because the minute God removes his spirit from us, the God, minute God removes his presence from us, just like the Israelites, the world will look and say, see, I told you so. And we're saying, God, would you fall on us like rain so the world can see not who we are as a church, but to see who you are as a God. Would you rain your grace? Will you rain and pour your mercy out? Will you pour your spirit out that you can live in us and through us to our neighborhoods, to our families, and to our community, and to our city? The prayer of Jeremiah. So here's how I'd like to end today. Would you do me a favor? Would you just stand where you are? I want us together to recite together out loud the prayer of Jeremiah. Now, let me, let me just acknowledge this. You can say with your lips not mean anything, but sometimes our lips need to go before our hearts ever catch up to it. And so would you join me as a confession to God that we want to be about the fight The fight is not spiritual warfare out there in the battlefield. The fight is in the hearts of our commitment. And so Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 20 through 22. And would you repeat this with me? Lord, we confess our wickedness and that of our ancestors too. We all have sinned against you. 
For the sake of your reputation, Lord, do not abandon us. Do not disgrace your own glorious throne. Please remember us and do not break your covenant ways with us. Can any of the worthless foreign gods send us rain? Does it fall from the sky by itself? No, you are the one, O Lord our God. Only you can do such things. So we will wait for you to help us. Father, we come before you now. And I think I can confess this for all of us. We fall short. God, sometimes our outside looks better than our inside. But our confession is this, God, we want you and you alone. We want to give you all of our hearts. And you know the parts where we struggle. You know the parts that we're trying to hide. You know the parts that we want to give back and take back and give back and take back. God, you see us as we are. And so would you give us the strength to give you all of our hearts? And God, we declare this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, the one I drive home to, and as for me and my house, the one I call my church, we will serve the Lord. And may we never get caught up in the power of religiosity. May our power be found in the fact that we are fully following you. So today, Jesus, we give you our lives. Today, Jesus, we exalt you. Today, Jesus, we declare you Lord. Would you, Jesus, let it fall like rain. May your presence, may your spirit fall like rain and live in and through us. And that may we may walk in the power of your presence that the world may see a clearer picture of you. And we pray this in your holy name. And all the people said, amen.